I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Good afternoon. I'm Hilary Harper. I present the Saturday morning program on 774 ABC Melbourne and I'm very, very pleased to be welcoming you here today. Um, we'd like to acknowledge the support of the Heartline Subfund of Australian Communities for today's session and just a reminder to turn your phones off or onto silent. We don't want to have to do any more public flayings. They're very messy. Jacqueline Rose's writing has been described as agile, as meditative, as supple, and that's certainly her approach to her subject matter as well. She's written on topics as diverse as Peter Pan, Sylvia Plath, constructions of childhood and fantasy, and Freud and Lacan, and of course the two iconic figures that you've come to hear her explore today, Marilyn Monroe and Rosa Luxemburg, not often linked in the public mind. When I picked up the, uh, the Jacqueline Rose Reader, I thought I'll just read a few pieces that seem most relevant to this talk, but I found I was unable to limit myself it was a bit like chocolate. I just had to just one more. They were all fascinating for their refusal to let meaning be fixed unquestioningly. Uh, she is a fellow of the British Academy. She is a professor of English at Queen Mary University of London and a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. Please welcome Jacqueline Rose. Thank you all for coming. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to be at the Melbourne Literary Writers Festival on my way in. Uh, Bettina, I don't know if you're here, Bettina, but Bettina, the, uh, the teacher who drove me from the airport, said Melbourne is not a typical Australian city. She said for two main reasons. One, and she pointed the deciduous trees, which means Europe was here, right? And she, the other thing is the Melbourne Writers' Festival. So I'm very thrilled to be part of one of the things that distinguishes Melbourne in this way, and I'm, uh, it's my first visit to this country, and I'm very, uh, very moved by that. Um, I'm going to be talking, as you know, of course, about Rosa Luxemburg and Marilyn Monroe, and let me say uh, straight away, and I hope this won't be too big a disappointment to you all, that I will not be discussing Monroe's films. I'll be discussing her more as a person, as I see her, but if you want to talk about any of her films, well, that's a bit of a hostage to fortune, but if you want to talk about her films uh, in the discussion, I'd be very happy to do so. In fact, it's very frustrating for me not to have been able to do everything that I want. Um, so this morning, I'm going to be talking about two women who create their lives in the face of incredible odds. Whether they do so despite or because of those odds is a question which each of them embodies, a question they put as much to us as to themselves. For me, they are survivors, although the idea may at first glance seem strange since both could also be said to have died before her time. They have everything to teach us about the complex reckoning, the traffic between the cruelties of the heart and of the world. Both belong to the last century in which prosperity and killing increased in ways previously unknown. In this story, death shadows the lives of women whose energy, 
and whose protest against the constraints and the injustice of the modern world, I believe, has everything to teach us today. Now, you may be wondering how on earth they could possibly be linked. How on earth am I going to manage to move from Rosa Luxemburg, Marxist revolutionary of the first decades of the 20th century, to Mar Marilyn Monroe, the post-World War II American film icon? In fact, there are historical links, but that is not what I'm mostly going to focus on today. Instead, I want to suggest to you that Luxembourg and Monroe are bound by a radical misconception in a kind of mirror image of each other. To put it crudely, Luxembourg is seen as all mind and no body. In this, the fact that she was crippled has enormously helped. A recent critique describes her as over-intellectual, whatever that means. I'm very sensitive to that charge. While Monroe is, of course, seen as the reverse of body and nothing else. Another version would be that Luxembourg was all politics, Monroe all sex. In fact, Luxembourg is granted little sex, provided it is subordinated to her politics, where, of course, Monroe is seen as adrift in a world of which she understood absolutely nothing. This will not do. Feminism has long told us to be suspicious of such binaries. So today I hope to convince you of the opposite, that both these women instead demonstrate the radical inseparability of mind and body, of political public being in the world, and sensual, intimate life. Now, over the past year or so, they've both come to completely preoccupy me. Each of them seems to demand a new form of attention, somewhat at odds, at least I like to think so, with the normal reading. The more I've immersed myself in their lives, the more that sense has grown. In Luxembourg's case, it was my feeling that the messiest intensities of her personal life were not some reassuring addition to supplement her public role, showing her to be human after all, but the very seabed of what was most inspiring in her political vision. In Monroe's case, it was the dawning realization that this gifted, serious woman, her triumph and her wretchedness, whose beauty was splayed across the world, had served the most blatant political purpose, making of her the symptom of a post-war America that could not bear to look at itself. I see them both as artists, women who etch words and images out of living history and their own flesh. Luxembourg was a wordsmith who wrote poems as well as painting. Her political speeches and letters sing as much as they exhort, cajole, and proclaim. In her work, the revolutionary potential of the first decades of the 20th century is gifted with a language painstakingly crafted to its task. And Monroe, contrary to the dismissals or even mockery she so often attracts, is also, I believe, to be seen and respected as a consummate performer a brilliant artiste in whose hands, or rather across whose body and face, the dreams of Hollywood in a post-war America straining under the weight of its own ideals receive their most thorough and ultimately tragic exposure. The fact that they are women is key. If one of my aims is to add their names to the already distinguished ancestry, the foremothers of modern feminism, it is not because they saw themselves as feminists. They did not but because I believe that each of them, in, a way they in the way they understood and negotiated the perils of their lives, has something vital to say to feminism today. One thing they have in common is their suffering. But if both of them are stricken, they also make themselves the subjects of their own destiny. Destiny is distinct from fate, which condemns all its players in advance. Both of them trawl the dark night of the soul, where their most anguished inner voices reside, in order to understand what impedes them, but also in search of the resources to defy their own predicaments. If they attract me so deeply, 
It is because neither of them makes the mistake, as I see it, of believing that effective existence in the real world must come at the expense of the most painful forms of self-knowledge. Subject to violence, they also take their lives into their own hands. They are never, either of them, solely the victims of their history, even if that history finally kills them. Now, I'm assuming you more or less know the facts of their lives, so I'm just going to be very brief. Luxembourg, a Jewish woman born in Poland who rose up the highest echelons of German socialist circles to become one of the most outspoken revolutionary voices of the early 20th century, passionate enthusiast of the 1905 and then 1917 Russian revolutions, uncompromising detractor of her colleagues in the German Social Democratic Party, whose betrayal of revolution reached its crisis for her when they supported the munitions bill which heralded the start of the 1914 1918 war. I can't say how happy I am to be talking to you today, the day when the British Parliament defeated the proposition to bomb Syria. So it makes me feel slightly more comfortable. Okay. Frequently imprisoned for insulting the Kaiser and then for her opposition to that war, she was murdered by government henchmen in 1919 after the failed Spartacist revolutionary uprising. The brutal suppression of that revolution has consequences, I think, which are still with us to this day. It was a moment of truth when ruined, defeated soldiers were able fleetingly to glimpse that they had been the victim of a capitalist, imperialist war which had put the workers of the world at each other's throats. Socialism or barbarity was Luxembourg's famous slogan. After her death, barbarity would, of course, triumph. Out of the Freikorps that killed her would emerge some of the most fervent future supporters of Hitler. Monroe. A child of the post-war depression, she was born in 1926 in the suburbs of Los Angeles. According to the latest count, she moved during her childhood between 11 different foster homes, apart from the very short periods of time she lived with her mother's closest friend and also briefly with her mother before witnessing her being carted off to a mental home. Who then becomes, this much you don't need to tell me to tell you, America's most famous Second World War movie star. And the rags-to-riches story, although in fact she was never really poor, makes her the embodiment of the American dream. She will be the most photographed woman in the world, as well as one of its most gifted cinematic performers, as is now sometimes grudgingly being recognized. But there is always something wrong. Not just because the backstory of her life is so grim, nor just because of her early death, whether accidental or suicide, or indeed something for far more sinister, is to this day unclear but also because both of these realities are the bleak undertow, the always hovering B-movie, to the triumphant tale which a newly dominant America, spreading its goods and money across the globe after the Second World War, will try to tell the world and itself. She is far more aware, more critical, more resistance to everything that moment stands for, to all that she herself is meant to stand for, than we have been allowed to know. You will be getting the message already, I hope. For me, in their very different ways, these two women, they bear the ugly secrets of the consensus, the way of the Western world, which the corrupt, powerful, and overprivileged never stop telling us, no more so than now, is the way the world must and always will be. I see them as dissidents. Now, when Rosa Luxemburg steps onto the stage for the first time, launching what will be a brilliant career of public speaking, she slowly but surely takes the measure of her own power. Not that I am all fired up and bursting with enthusiasm. 
She writes from Berlin to her grudgingly appreciative lover, Leo Jokikis, in 1898. On the contrary, I am quite calm and look to the future with confidence. I am sure that in half a year's time, I will be among the best of the party's speakers. The voice, the effortlessness, the language, everything she writes to him comes out right, as if she had been speaking for 20 years. She is a mere 28 at the time. Luxembourg is collecting herself, finding her voice in what is, of course, essentially a man's world. A small Polish-Jewish woman with a limp. She is metaphorically, but also literally, drawing herself up to her full height. She will be the equal of every man she addresses, and more than the equal of the many male revolutionary pundits and stars, including Lenin, whom she will take to task in the course of her life. Most simply, she conquers their world. At the same time, she has no doubt that what she brings to that world is uniquely her own. Do you know what I have been feeling very strongly? She writes to Jockey Kez a few months later. Something is moving inside me and wants to come out. In my soul, a totally new original form is ripening that ignores all rules and conventions. It breaks them by the power of ideas and strong conviction. I want to affect people like a clap of thunder, to inflame their minds, not by speechifying, but with the breadth of my vision, the strength of my conviction, and the power of my expression. Fiery, intemperate, ruthless, Luxembourg could be all of these. But for her to be a political actor in the world is to usher into that world something as unpredictable as a new birth. Then she adds, how, what, where? I still don't know. Appearances can be deceptive. Luxembourg's hesitancy is the backdrop, the indispensable companion of her poise. She is calling for a new language of politics, one which today is still mostly met with incomprehension or impatience, a political vision that will not try to extinguish what cannot be controlled in advance or fully known. Uncertainty was her creed. Writing to Louise Kautsky on November the 24th, 1917 from Breslau prison, where she had been imprisoned for opposition to the war, she praised her for still holding on to, quote, the groping, searching, anxious, unquote, young woman inside her. Kautsky, by the way, was 63 at the time, a fact I find immensely reassuring. When she had visited Luxembourg in prison in May, her inner torment, quote, her restless, dissatisfied searching, had been transparent to Luxembourg in her eyes, younger than the rest of her, Luxembourg insists, by 20 years. How I love you precisely for that inner uncertainty. Now, for Luxembourg, this was as much a political as a personal form of virtue. Far from being a sum of ready-made prescriptions, she wrote in her 1918 essay on the Russian Revolution, also written in prison, by the way, socialism is something which lies completely hidden in the mists of the future. For Luxembourg, there was something radically unknowable at the core of political life. She could herself be tyrannical in her dealings with friend and foe. But, or rather perhaps for that very reason, she hated nothing so much as the attempt to subject the vagaries of public and private life to over-rigorous forms of control. For Luxembourg, the revolution in Russia was exciting precisely because its future was unknown. We live in turbulent time when all that deserve, exists deserves to perish. Now, it is, of course, the whole point of a revolution, as we know so painfully today in relationship to Egypt, that you cannot know what, if anything, can or should survive. 
But for Luxembourg, the danger was as real as it was inspiring. The revolution is magnificent, she wrote in 1906. Everything else is bilge. But in whatever condition she found herself, in Warsaw, she was one of 14 political prisoners crammed into a single cell. Luxembourg never lost her fervor, her joy, as she put it, amidst the horrors of life. My inner mood, she writes after listing the indignities of her captivity, is, as usual, superb. Luxembourg had, we could say, the relish and courage of her convictions, although I don't think conviction is, in fact, quite the right word. There is no one, I was saying, who better captures the spirit, the promise, and the risk of revolution than Rosa Luxembourg. Now, much of the hostility towards her was pure chauvinism. She was born in Zamoysh, in Russian-occupied Poland in 1870. Her family moved to Warsaw when she was four, so one of her earliest memories would have been the pogrom of 1881. Assimilated Jews, they belonged neither in the Jewish community, which rejected them, nor with the Poles, whose predominant political mood was a fervent anti-Russian nationalism with which she would never identify. She had arrived on the doorstep of the German Social Democratic Party as a young Jewish woman radical in 1898. The misogyny she unleashed would become legendary. And although she never self-identified as Jewish, being Jewish is something which always identified her. As biographer Elsbieta Ettinger puts it, she represented a nation that Germans considered inferior, Poland, and a race, Jewry, that offended their sensibilities. None of that was altered. In fact, in many ways, it was exacerbated by the fact that she rapidly rose up the echelons of the party to become a star. In the words of Hannah Arendt, who adored her, she was, quote, and remained a Polish Jew in a country she disliked and a party she soon came to despise. Now, she was always an outsider, and I think it's this fact that gave her license to think outside the frame, to be able to critique a revolution without for one moment allowing her enthusiasm for that same revolution to wane. Now, her two main bones of contention with the Bolsheviks were the issue of land distribution to the peasants and that of national self-determination, which you'll be very relieved to know I'm not going to go into here. But running through these critiques, and in a way their foundation, was the issue of democracy and freedom. Revolutions, she admonished Lenin in her famous 1905 essay on the mass strike, quote, do not allow anyone to play schoolmaster with them. Famously, she accused Lenin of subordinating Russia to the servile spirit of the night watchman state. In fact, as she acknowledged, no one knew better than Lenin that socialism demands, quote, a complete spiritual transformation in the masses. But she continued with uninhibited and typical ruthlessness. He is completely mistaken in his means. Quote, dictatorial, force, decree of the factory overseer, draconian penalties, rule by terror. When Lenin instructed Clara Zetkin to publish Luxembourg's complete works after her death, his comrades wanted this particular manuscript burnt. For Luxembourg, the unprecedented, unpredictable movement of revolution had to be carried over into the life that follows. The period after revolution has taken place. What, we might ask, would our political landscape look like if it placed at the core of its self-definition the illimitable, potentially outrageous processes of revolutionary life? Listen to her vocabulary. New territory. A thousand problems. Only experience is capable of correcting and opening new ways. Only unobstructed, effervescent life falls into a thousand new forms and improvisations, brings to life creative force, itself corrects all mistaken attempts. The point of politics is to bring 
creative force to life. She is the poet of the revolution. Freedom, she famously stated, is always the freedom to think otherwise. Somewhere, I think Luxembourg is always talking about knowledge and truth, about what is struggling under the pressure of free inquiry and against the debilitating facade of bourgeois life to be understood. And of course, in the post-Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden atmosphere, we know all about freedom. We're reliving it. You know, for a long time, I thought one gets part that you sort of solve these problems as you go along, and I'm realizing more and more that they recur each time. They have to be fought each time. So she's talking about freedom and what she's saying could be applied to what we're going through today. Precisely because of its unerring and malicious canniness, capitalism cannot indefinitely hide its ugliness from the world, again, as we only know too well today. In which case, the people will turn to revolution, not just to use Marx's terms because of the clash between the forces and relations of production, but because the mind always has the power to expose and outstrip injustice. Or to put it more simply, as we have witnessed, however painfully and today uncertainly since the Arab Spring of 2011, there comes a moment when the people decide they have had enough. Okay, so for Luxembourg, mental and economic freedom were not interrelated, they were the same thing. The only genuine foundation of political experience was the school of public life itself. And politics is a form of education, its only true form. As she put it in relationship to women's suffrage in 1902, the well-tried argument that people are not mature enough to exercise the, the right to vote is fatuous. It was used in South Africa, of course, not endlessly. As if, she wrote, there were any other school of political maturity than exercising those rights themselves. Not even the Revolutionary Party in Russia at the time of the mass strike in 1905 could be said to have made the revolution since, quote, it had even to learn its law from the course itself. So I'm suggesting she's a truly scandalous thinker. She knew she always went a little bit too far. Jusqu'à outrance, or to the outer limit, was one of her favorite phrases. That she was ruthless, I think, helped. She took pride in being a creature, quote, without a home, as the prosecutor accused her when she was on trial in 1914 for inciting public disobedience against the imminent war. But there is more. It is as if the very obliqueness of her position, her status as outsider, also gave her a kind of freedom to think the unthought, to force the unthinkable into the language of politics. I have long believed this to be one of the supreme and unique tasks of feminism, what it has to contribute to political understanding, and I now realize that, perhaps without knowing it, I got the idea from Rosa Luxemburg. It was for her a radical failure of politics not to be in touch with the deepest parts of the self. Do you know what gives me no peace nowadays? She writes to Jockey Kills in 1898. The fact that people, when they are writing, forget for the most part to go deeper inside themselves. This is not, as any woman who has been involved in left politics will confirm the first demand she is likely to encounter. It is not a demand that men on the left, dare I say most men, usually make of themselves. The question of the inner life was, in fact, at the heart of her relationship with Jokikes. Repeatedly, she reproaches him for writing to her only about party and political matters and for neglecting all matters of the heart. She could cope with all of that, quote, if in addition to that, alongside of that, there was a bit of the human person, the soul, the individual to be seen. But from him, there is nothing, absolutely nothing. Whereas for her, it is quite the contrary, as she encounters a whole crowd of thoughts and impressions at every turn. So freedom in the inner life is to do with the freedom to move inside your mind. 
And at the core of their struggle was the question of power. You have too much faith in the magic power of the word force, both in politics and personal life, she writes to him in 1899. I, for one, have more faith in the power of the word do. He was mentoring her. His entire correspondence systematically displays one huge, unpleasant thing, like the letters, quote, of a teacher to his pet pupil. Jockey Hayes was exerting over Luxembourg the terrorizing draconian power of the night watchman's state. Gets much worse when she tries to leave him. He shows up on the front door, will not give her back the keys, follows her down the street with a gun. Surely this struggle served as a rehearsal for her later critique of Leninism. Her profoundest, most rebellious political insight lifted straight out of what she called the bruises of the soul. For her deepest insight into both aspects of her life, Luxembourg plums the same source. How, we might ask, could you possibly believe that a revolution can or should be mastered in advance if you are in touch with those parts of the mind which the mind itself cannot master and which do not even know themselves? Powerful, unseen plutonic forces are at work, she wrote to Louise Kautsky in 1917, and are decisive. Why, she writes to her young lover, Kostya Zetkin, in 1907, as she wanders the night streets of London, am I plunging again into dangers and frightening new situations in which I am sure to be lost? She was, quotes, a war veteran of the night. But in fact, those are words which Marilyn Monroe used to describe herself, a war veteran of the night. Now, there is something ironic or perhaps even perverse I know in returning from Luxembourg to Monroe. Since Monroe could be seen to embody at best or worst the triumph of commodity culture and the ethos of post-World War II America, which meant the end of Luxembourg's socialist dream. She would not, I think, have been wholly surprised. If she believed in the inexorable advance of socialism, she also knew that capitalism had a ruthless capacity through its own crisis to renew itself, as again we are witnessing today. Above all, I like to think she would have understood only too well what was being asked of Monroe. This is the moment when capitalism starts to boast not just that it is the one and only world order, but the world's one and only desire. When that desire becomes enshrined in a woman who is meant to personify its very perfection. No limp, no stutter. In fact, Monroe stuttered all her life. As Monroe herself put it in her last interview, I don't look at myself as a commodity, but I'm sure a lot of people have. Now, America had, of course, been Europe's savior, first military and then economics through the Marshall Plan. As the continent struggled to emerge from the catastrophe of the war, America took up its position as bastion of freedom and new dawn. And in that role, Hollywood will be one of its strongest suits. This was America, in the words of film critic Laura Mulvey, quote, as the world's new image of a new democracy of glamour, which proclaimed the desirability of capitalism to the outside world. Monroe is the face and emissary of that desire. In the 1953 Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, one of her most successful films, the two dazzling showgirls sail across the Atlantic, ferrying American beauty to a still war-scarred Europe. Europe's catastrophe was America's opportunity, allowing it to resume a full-on cultural and economic colonization of Europe, which dated back to the 90s and 20s and 30s, and which had been merely interrupted by the war. Monroe, we could say, was America's answer to the war, its greatest boast and a covert, or not so covert, weapon in the Cold War that follows. 
One of her most famous moments is her singing to US troops in Korea in 1954. She herself said later that nothing had ever made her so happy. When Khrushchev asked to meet Monroe on a visit to the US in 1959, his aides explained somewhat embarrassedly that for the USSR, America is Coca-Cola and Marilyn Monroe. Now, Monroe's life shadows the transition of America from Roosevelt's New Deal, which saved the nation from depression through World War II, and from there into the 1950s Cold War, Korea, and McCarthy's witch hunters suspected communists, which was one of its ugliest legacies. To such moral decay, Monroe's, Monroe's beauty was the perfect foil. Her flawlessness was a type of magical thinking, America's dream of itself come true. In fact, despite her Korean moment, Monroe surrounded herself with people who provided some of the most searing commentary on any such delusion and on the decline of America's liberal ideals which accompanied it. Monroe may have embodied the perfection of America, its most glowing image of itself, but she did not believe in it. She was suspicious of the official line. In May 1960, at the height of the Cold War, a CIA U-2 plane was shot down by the Soviets. A few weeks later, when a second plane was spotted trespassing in the same airspace, Monroe phoned an aide to ask why. He told her it was not spying, but merely carrying out an oceanic survey. I don't know, she replied. I don't trust us. Such a brilliant sentence. How can I not trust us in which it is syntactically included? Oh, that's genius. Okay. Her close friend Norman Rostin tells the somewhat unlikely story of how in 1960 she tried to persuade Arthur Miller to offer their home as a safe haven to Indonesian President Sukarno, who had led his country struggle for independence when he faced an imminent coup. He was eventually overthrown with the help of the CIA, and that was the beginning of Suharto's uh, rule and the CIA's first major, major overseas operation of the war had been the ousting of Mossadegh in Iran in 1953, which is also the year of gentlemen prefer blonde. So all these events are sort of running parallel with each other. My nightmare is the H-bomb, Monroe's reporter is saying to a reporter who asks for her dreams or nightmares. What's yours? None of this, of course, is well known. Monroe's politics are like a hidden life behind the screen. There is a lesson here, too, that feminism can make use of. No woman is ever as bad as her own worst cliché. In fact, this is obvious to anyone who watches her best performances with attention. It was the genius of Monroe to make virtually every one of her roles a perfect send-up or parody of itself. It is, I believe, at least partly because her own conviction in the American dream was so precarious, her hold on what she was meant to personify so fragile, that Monroe became the object of such mania. Monroe was too close, she remained too close even as a star to the other side of her own story. As those who knew her insisted, the audience she most cared about were the workers, the down and outs, and misfits, whose investment in her as a fantasy she understood only too well. Her mother had been a film cutter in Hollywood, and Monroe had gazed at the neon signs out of the window of the orphanage she had briefly lived in as a child. She was a champion of the underdog. According to Rabbi Goldberg, who converted her to Jewishness for her marriage to Arthur Miller, this was one of the main attractions for her of Jewishness, and she never renounced it even after their divorce. Goldberg himself had led civil rights marches and demonstrations. I realize I could have called this lecture Two Jewish Women Lefties and left you guessing as to who on earth I was going to be talking about. 
Okay, in 1960, she wrote to Lester Markle, a senior U New York Times editor and friend, protesting the US government's policy towards Fidel Castro. You see, Lester, she writes, I was brought up to believe in democracy. And when the Cubans finally threw out Batista with so much bloodshed, the United States didn't even stand behind them and give them help or support even to develop democracy. After her breakup with Milo, Monroe, Miller Monroe moved further to the left. She was being trailed by the FBI for her communist sympathies from 1955 onwards. Who said, in fact, quite a few people have in fact said that it, she got her politics from Miller? No way. She was way ahead. Okay, now democracy is, of course, the ultimate potentially threatening new beginning as recent events across the globe, starting with the Arab Spring and its painful aftermath, has once again made all too clear. And for Luxembourg, it was the load, star and litmus of all political life. It was one of her main disputes with Trotsky and Lenin. Now, there is a historical irony here, which I think links these two women. Monroe is coolly observing that in the aftermath of the war, waged on behalf of democratic freedom, America was turning out not to be the unqualified champion of democracy after all, a fact only too clear today. In fact, there were no lengths to which America would be unwilling to go to stifle democracy when faced with the prospect of socialism, the only condition for Luxembourg under which true democracy could flourish. In moments like this, Monroe rips the cover off what she herself was meant as if by nature to personify. In fact, if Monroe was a natural, it is only in the sense that the one who appears most natural, like the clown or fallabout comic, is mistress of her craft. It's almost as if she were the shooter and the subject, writes Lawrence Schiller, called in to photograph her on the set of her last unfinished film, Something's Got to Give. She had shown in quote what other photographers knew, that when she turned herself onto the camera, the photographer didn't have to be more than a mechanic. Monroe turned over exposure, the most photographed woman in the world, into part of her art. To this extent, those who suggest she was wholly subject to that image and controlled by it could not be farther from the truth. The story of her struggle to control her own film scripts is another story in itself. I'd be happy to talk about that later. Photography was, however, her unchallenged domain. She could call the shots and dictate the pace, wrote Eva Arnold, the famous photographer, be in total control. This is not, however, control, as it is most commonly understood. <coughs> Their intimate collaboration involves something different. It was, Arnold comments, the unpredictable in herself that she used. This vocabulary is so close to Luxembourg on spontaneity. It was the unpredictable in herself that she used. How can you use the unpredictable? Crucially, neither Luxembourg nor Monroe falls into the trap of responding to the worst of their lives with a counter-affirmation of power. They have other and better ideas. Luxembourg, as we have seen, was relentless in her critique of the authority of party and state, the night watchman state. Instead, she yearned, sensucht, or yearning was one of her favorite German words, for another type of energy, like that of the mass strike, which she described as flowing, bubbling, and splitting into multifarious streams. Monroe, too, felt herself moving between two different realms. Her unpublished letters and journals, which have recently been published, show a woman using her privacy to scavenge beneath the veneer of reason. In just one of many extra extracts, Monroe can be read as not just confronting the dark side of herself, but lifting that struggle to another type of insight. Quote, fear, wonderment, the wondering of something, ask it questions, the unbelievableness of the actuality if it happened, 
or the pleading and promising of anything, reasoning, which is more conventional. Because pleading and promising of anything would be a very good description of your current election campaign, I believe. Okay. No, and of any election campaign, I'm not prejudiced. Okay. No amount of conventional reasoning will withstand what is unbelievable or unexpected about the world. Ask questions, or we might say, keep an open mind. This is not, however, an easy realm to enter. It can break you apart. I feel, Monroe wrote, as though it's all happened to someone right next to me. I'm close, I can feel it, I can hear it, but it isn't really me. For Luxembourg, quote again, life was not inside me, not here where I am, but somewhere far off, off beyond the rooftops. At moments like this, the resonances between the two of them are really uncanny. You do not find yourself or simply another self when you enter these regions of the mind. Entering this domain is also a type of accountability. Neither of these women delude themselves that violence simply belongs to somebody or somewhere else. And on this, Monroe is perhaps the most blatant. Everyone has violence in them, she states baldly in her personal notes of 1955. I am violent. The critique of reason, or the logos, as it is sometimes called, brings with it no false presumption for either of these women of innocence. As Angela Carter wrote in her introduction to her wonderful short story collection, Wayward Girls and Wicked Women, you only really need the title, we find it very hard as women ever to blame ourselves. So let us praise famous women without falling into the trap, as I see it, of claiming, as some forms of feminism do claim, that women are simply nicer than men. These are women who exist, who know that they exist on more than one plane, whose rage against the iniquities of the world meshes with their own darkest hours. For me, this is the creative paradox they offer. Their indictment of injustice, their plaint, requires no internal whitewash of their minds. They are, as women often are, I would argue, the only partly self-declared psychoanalysts of their moment and of themselves. To conclude, my ideal, wrote Rosa Luxemburg as a teenager, is a social system that allows one to love everybody with a clear conscience. Striving after it, defending it, I might perhaps even learn to hate. Then at the age of 47, beset by illness, she wrote to a friend, love was or is always more significant than the object who stirs it. Because, she continues, it has the capacity to transform the whole world. Luxembourg's remarkable political and emotional energy is, for me, exemplary, provided we remember that she does not leave hate out of the picture. I think every human being knows how to hate, Monroe said in one of her last interviews in August 1962, because if they don't know how to hate, they wouldn't know how to love or any of the in-betweens. Arthur Miller had just dedicated the misfits to Clark Gable, as a man who did not know how to hate. For Monroe, that was not a compliment. Finally, what Luxembourg and Monroe offer, what I've tried to offer you today, is a form of understanding, neither pure nor good, but equal to the ravages of the world that confronts them. More simply, I've wanted to celebrate them, since I believe that the future of feminism also depends on how we, as women, talk about each other. Thank you very much. And we do have some time for questions, if anyone's got a question. I think we, uh, we might rely on yelling from the, the audience, if that's all right. Oh, we do have a microphone. Anybody got a question? I can start. 
I'll leap in. Uh, there's a wonderful quote that you you quote from Marilyn. I am many stories, and you talk a lot uh, in the in various pieces of writing about the points of tension within discourses about women that let you uh, uncover new truths. What are some of the things that you the points of tension that you you found when looking at Marilyn and Rosa? What are the points where you went that's different? Uh, well, I think what I felt so strikingly well they're, they're very different, although I think they're connected. But I think the point of tension I found with Luxembourg was this notion of the bruises of the soul. Um, and the way in which the bruises of the soul and the unpredictability and uncontrollability of that, which is a source of pain, I really don't want to idealize it, were also at the foundation of her concept of spontaneity in relationship to revolutionary life. So it's as if she had the capacity to take something that was very, very painful but to give it a transformative place in her mind and then see how that might work in the world of politics. So I feel that just those transitions are quite remarkable. With Monroe, um, it's so hard, it's harder in a way to write about Monroe because the moment you, you read those journals, they only came out a few years ago. Has anybody here read them? Yeah, a few people have read them. Well, I don't know if you agree, but you read them and the, the angst and the pain is overwhelming. But she's also a poet, which I had no idea before. I mean, she writes poetry. And she also sees the uncovering of the unconscious mind as a task. I mean, she was in analysis, as we know. That's another whole story with Ralph Greenson. But she was interested in Freud way before that. Um, and she writes to herself messages about knowing oneself and being true to oneself. And this is all going on at the same time as she's being asked to be this blank screen on which everything can be projected. So in her case, I felt there really was a relationship between what was being asked for her and what she had to do internally to survive it. But because what's being asked for her is what's still being asked of America and its citizens, and in some sense the whole world, under capitalism, right, then the price of knowing, uh, the, price of knowing the underside of that is almost inaudible, still today. It's very, very, very hard to listen to it. So that's what I felt was so amazing about the two of them, if you like, that they're sort of, I don't know if I answered your question, but there's something pulling in two different directions and they manage to subsist in both spaces, not always completely successfully, but that's why I see them struggling. I'm also interested because they do seem to share uh, that there's a, a theme of poetry and poetics and also humour, laughter, wit that flows between them. Oh, well, Rosa Luxemburg is an ironist. I mean, the love, I mean, sh the, one of the reviews of her, uh, her letters that came out in England, first they published them, I don't know if they've come out here, I'm sure they have. Um, one of the reviews said, oh, she's a human being capable of laughter. And I thought, oh, please, <laughs> you know, capable of love and laughter. And you thought, oh, give me a break, right? Okay. And she has a wonderful article about um, a vol volcanic eruption in the Martinique island, St. Pelé. And she talks about the eruption laughing at the carnivores who rush to help the people but are just trying to get their investments in to control the situation, prepare for the next volcano, which again will only save the rich people's houses. Right, she does it all in one, but she uses laughter and ironic, irony as a kind of political task. And when at one of her trials for opposition to the war, the prosecuting judge says, you know, you, you, you might want to escape, so we've got to put you in prison. And she said, we laugh at such a notion. You might want to escape, but we, don't. we laugh at it. So for her, humor was political. And I do think the same thing about Monroe. I mean, if you watch f some of her films, 
and you watch the way she's sending herself up. I mean, she is, she's a brilliant comedian. Sybil Thorndike said she was one of the best. Um, one of her producers compared her with Chaplin. But of course, you weren't meant to be quite noticing that. Uh, so if you see, you know, How to Marry a Millionaire, she is the parody of that desire, which of course then crumbles, because oh, I'm married to poor but delicious men. Delicious might not be quite the right word. Um, but so, so I think humour is a very political task and or political capacity for all of them. Freud, of course, said humour was always political. It's always ripping the cover off what could, can't be spoken. So it's very close to the dream, but it was a social form. Because thing. that sending up for her must have been treading a very fine line indeed because she was meant to embody that dream and that perfection and that desire, but here she was going... Yeah, it's just a body. Get over it, really. Wasn't she? You can see <laughs> you her did going... did that very well, Hilary. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it last night. It's amazing. Yeah. She's basically going, boobs, hips, you know, come on. Yeah. But it's, it's within yeah. the context of going, this is what everybody who's watching me outside the camera and inside this, the scene desires. Well, there is a form of kitsch. I mean, she's a great kitsch artist in a way. And I think she, I think she really does pull this off. Um, and... I mean, the, the I can't go. I'm having a, a, a blank up for a minute. Which is the film that I end on? Which I think it is. Uh, How to marry a millionaire, and the song is the song. When you get when what you, you want. get what you want, you don't want it. And you know, I thought she'd been reading Lacan. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, but it is extraordinary the way she performs it, as if you are ridiculous. Do you realize how ridiculous all this is? And you know, it's a bit like Jenny Holzer, "Protect Me from What I Want." You know, the wonderful American artist who emblazoned signs across public buildings. And the casino in Las Vegas allowed her to have, running across the top of the building, protect me from what I want. You know, or Barbara Kruger, I shop, therefore I am, which of course Selfridge is appropriated as part of its publicity. <laughs> these things are, as Brexit, these things are endlessly reappropriable. However, th that level of irony, I think she, she's up there with those people, definitely. Yeah. Are there any other questions? Yep, there's one. Because I could keep going, but no, that would be unfair. I don't think your mic's on. Mm. Just yell. Oh yes, well she 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 founded her own production company, and I think it was 1954 with Milton Green, and they produced uh, The Prince and the Showgirl. And then it folded due to, and she insisted she had 51% control of the company. She wasn't going to, she wasn't going to let let herself just be sort of you know, controlled by Milton Green. It did fold, so it wasn't a success. But in the meantime, she managed to secure a contract with Fox, which gave her certain control over her scripts and who she worked with. And this, and she was the first star to see down the moguls and win. It was all over the press. Monroe walks out of Hollywood. She went to New York. She wanted to work with Lee Strasberg. She wanted to be an actress, right? I mean, there are incredible stories like this. So one director wanted to star her opposite Montgomery Cliff long before The Misfits in Off Human Bondage. And Zanuck at Fox said, no, you can't do that. And she lost that one. But she, she won in terms of the amount of money they had to give her and the control over her scripts. And of course, on money, she was terribly funny because they weren't paying her very much. And uh, um, gentlemen prefer blonde. She said, you know, this film is about gentlemen prefers blondes and I'm the blonde, you know? <laughs> so where's my money, right? Um, and then right at the end, which is often seen as a catastrophe because she was fired from something's got to give and people see this as a decline into drugs and alcoholism behind which there's also another story. 
Um, in fact, they were begging her to go back at the end. They'd, they wanted to renew the contract. They wanted her back on the set because nobody could do what she did. Um, so it was a constant struggle with Hollywood. And she says at one point, if I hadn't become famous, and it was the people who made me famous, I would still be a Hollywood slave. And Weatherby, Bill Weatherby, incredible radical gay guy who had a black lover and who did a, one of the best books I've read of conversations with her, he said, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood, um, Hollywood treatment of its women actresses were like plantations treatment of their slaves. So there were really kind of racial questions here. And she was so attuned to that. She said, I would have been a slave if I hadn't become a star. Another question? I've got one. Um, you, you've I think there's a question here. Oh, yeah? Maybe if you could yell it out a bit louder so everyone the can The mic's hear. on its way. As I said, it's really more ideas floating from your really fascinating talk. Um, I'm interested in fame. You've just mentioned fame in your answer there. And the thoughts that I'm having, probably because I'm reading Hilary Mantel, is Hilary Mantel's being absolutely, you know, grilled and vilified for making those comments about... Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton and, the, you know, the Lady Di and so on. So I'm just wondering if you want to just sort of mull on that possibility. Well, all us, it's a huge topic, of course. Um, at the, the discussion last night on Inside the London Review of Books, we were talking about, I'm not just trying to plug the paper, but we were talking about um, the way the paper has published sc scandalous stuff on the Israel-Palestine conflict and the Hillary Mantel piece, and how in both cases, something unthinkable is allowed to be said on the pages of the paper, because... Uh, Kate Middleton is the austerity princess. I say she is the answer to austerity, increasing inequality, increasing unrest. It's the perfect heterosexual couple with their baby. Is meant to be still the baby's son, George. The answer. Does that matter? Maybe not. The answer to everything, right? So um, I think the the vitriol unleashed against Hilary Mantel um, is pretending to be in defense of a woman, but actually it's a form of misogyny against Mantel. Okay. Um, and the Princess Di phenomenon, I mean, that's... How long have we got? I mean, you're, but you're absolutely right to point to them as women who are asked to serve a political purpose, which then completely screws them, basically. Um, and that you can see them flay... I see them like creatures in a cage, fighting against what's happened to them, and then occasionally smiling through the bars because they sort of enjoy it a little bit, because everybody's a narcissist. Right? So Princess Di was so fascinating because she wanted to be seen to be good. That's always a terrible trap. You want to be seen to be good, it means somewhere you think you're very bad. And then, of course, if you're being seen to be good, then you're not good anymore because it's become a form of vanity. But there's no way around that if you're Princess Diana. So I think a lot of these women are really at the heart of problems of what it means to present yourself in the world without falling into all the traps that are laid for you as a woman if you do. Yeah. And there's always. Yes. The question was, what do Munro and Luxembourg have that others don't? How can they do it and others can't? Well, they can and they can't. I mean, they were both. Neither of them survived it in a way, although I see them as survivors, of course. 
but the viciousness and the misogyny against Luxembourg was astounding, and the anti-Semitism. You know, so I can't remember, on the, on the male left, forgive me for saying this a second time, right? You know, I've got many friends on the male left, um, but it's true, you know, people like uh, Wolfgang Heiner of the German Social Democratic Party said these Eastern European Jewish immigrants are walking into the room and spitting in our parlor. You know, I mean, it was really nasty stuff. Uh, and Alfred Adler, who actually sought to find himself or was it Bebel who defined himself as a feminist and who said she will not be allowed to spit? Spitting seems to be a thing. She will not be allowed to spit in our soup. I mean, it's really hideous. And the fact that she was Jewish, of course. Um, and with Monroe, you're not allowed to see. I mean, she stuttered. No, hardly anybody knows that. You're not allowed to know about that because it's all got to be perfect. How did they do it? They partly did it through an internal vision. Monroe knows, knew she wanted. You read the accounts of Monroe's early life. And her strength and resilience and determination to make it were absolutely overwhelming. So she wanted to embody, uh, she wanted to succeed as a woman. That's what she wanted. And Monroe wanted, to, uh, Luxembourg wanted to succeed as a revolutionary. It's different. But they both have a certain kind of drivenness, which I think is crucial in both cases. We've got a couple more minutes. We can fit in another question. There's one here. Let's go with the mic. I like screaming, but, you know. Um, I just wanted you to talk about, you know, um, the writing process. When do you write, when don't you write, and your research, you know, or just the day-to-day -day basics or practice? Or Me as a writer? Oh, that's so sweet. Um, sweet. <laughs> I didn't mean to be patronising, but I wasn't <laughs> expecting that question. Um, the writing process, well, it varies from day to day. I wish I was, and no, I don't wish I was like Thomas Mann, but you know, I wish I could do eight till one and then the rest of the day is free. I mean, isn't that, you have to have such discipline to work like that. I feel I, I waste a lot of time pottering around and making the phone call. You know, not doing the, going shopping and getting the groceries, all, all that kind of stuff, and then thinking, will I write? Uh, every time I write, I think I, I can't do it. Every single time. And I always say this to my students when they say they can't do it, and they're always so relieved to hear this. I always think I can't do it. I remember I had a friend once, and I said to him, I really can't write this. And he said, yeah, but you said that last time. I said, yeah, but this time it's really true. <laughs> and the interesting thing is there always is a bit of truth in it. There's always the moment of writing. is always the moment when you confront the thing which should, if you were sane, stop you from writing, because you never know enough. You know, I don't have Polish. What do I what do? And Russian. What am I doing writing about Rosa Luxemburg? I could look at the, Poli the Polish original against the English and do a tiny bit. I could do the German up to a point, but I don't have... So I shouldn't be right. You know, if George Steiner was here, he'd say, you definitely shouldn't be right. But we don't care about that too much. Right? Okay. <laughs> right. Sorry? Research. Well, with Monroe, it just became so exciting. As you just... I mean, first of all, I was sent by the LRB the unpublished... the just-published unpublished letters and fragments. And that really got me going. So I thought, whoa. There's something here that um, I had no idea about, absolutely no idea about. And then it's a question of hit and miss. So, for example, one of the last things I read was the book by Weatherby, Conversations with Monroe. And then I discovered incredible things like the lover Christine, the black woman Christine, who identifies with Monroe, which was interesting enough in itself, turns out to be a black man. And so then I started uncovering what Monroe was saying about homosexuality. Then I discovered she'd had a black lover. She said it was like having sex with someone in a jail. 
You know, I realized this woman was hanging out with communist blacks, Jews, you know, you name it. She was a real border crosser. But most of it is serendipitous. You just don't know what you're going to find. So you have to sort of go in there and hope. It's, it's an act of hope every time. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. But if you would like an insight into Jacqueline's research, check out the footnotes in the Jacqueline Rose Reader. They are incredibly wide-ranging and eclectic, and it's a really good read. Thank you, everyone, for coming. That's Thank available you. in the bookshop. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.